This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily and these days more than daily politics podcast. I'm Katie Balls and I'm joined by Fraser Nelson and Isabel Hardman and we've had the news that the Prime Minister is to resign. Isabel, can you just bring us up to date? Because we've had a live blog going uh, yesterday, it's had to run into today, post going up around midnight, because the resignations have just n- not stopped. But yet, it has now reached the point where the Prime Minister has decided to leave. Yeah, so I think it was safe to sleep at about 2am last night, and then all started up again at about 6, with ministers continuing to resign. The, the decisive moment was when Nadim Zahawi, who has been Chancellor for I think it's 33 hours, 36 hours, placed Boris Johnson in checkmate by publishing a letter on Treasury-headed notepapers, so making clear that he hadn't resigned, calling on the Prime Minister to quit, uh, saying that he had made this advice private initially, Prime Minister last night in number 10, as we know, uh, but that the Prime Minister had ignored this advice, that so he was making it public. But because he wasn't resigning, what he was effectively saying was, look... I'm not going to collapse your government, you have to collapse your government. Because you, if you sack a chancellor and then you pick what... I mean, there's no one to pick who's going to become your chancellor now. Then you you are collapsing the government. So it was basically game over for Boris Johnson. We also had Michelle Donnell and the Education Secretary quitting, which did mean that there was only one minister left in that department, and that was an unpaid peer, uh, as opposed to any... MPs. Um, And so even though Chris Heaton-Harris, the chief whip, had been telling Boris Johnson since early evening yesterday that he was not going to be able to fill the spaces in his government, he was not going to have a functioning government, and actually, indeed, the the more junior whips were busy cancelling pieces of legislation that were going through the Commons today, Boris Johnson didn't actually acknowledge that psychologically until today. Fraser, uh, last night you had a situation where there was a cabinet minister delegation. The delegation fell into two camps. Nadine Doris, for example, was not in the camp trying to get the prime minister to resign. But it failed to do the job at the time. Yet clearly overnight the prime minister had a change of heart. What do you think has led him to change his mind? I think for a moment of madness he thought that he could brazen it out. In his head... He was elected by millions of people and could not be deposed by a small number of Tories. So, and this, by the way, is a flaw of his whole premiership. He had a presidential model in his mind. The idea that he had the personal mandate, he could apply who he wanted. The other guys were only there because because of him. And by the way, he's quite right to say, but if it wasn't for him personally, a good number of these Tories would not be in Parliament. There would be no majority, there probably would be no Brexit. But ultimately, we've got a parliamentary democracy. You cannot run it as a presidency, as Boris Johnson tried to do. And I think what really changed for him was when even the people he newly appointed turned against him. So he thought, oh, it's not just simply a question of filling in, because you think, OK, there's enough psychopaths in the Tory party to fill these vacancies, although I think we'd run, we'd run to 52 the number of resignations. You need quite a lot of Tories to do it. 52 but, psychopaths. <laughs> yeah, but even the new ones were saying to him, actually, you've got to go. So Nadim Zahawi, I imagine Nadim Zahawi probably, did, when he accepted the job of Chancellor, that might have been a good point to say, by the way, I don't think you should continue as leader. I think he dropped that bombshell a few hours later. Uh, but, you know, when Michelle Donnelly quit, quit as Education Secretary um, after, you know, less than 48 hours in the job, 
I think it became clear, even to Boris Johnson, that if he tried to plug these holes in his government, he'd end up with the same thing. They'd all be um, taking the job and telling him to go and then quitting. So it was unsustainable. So what was happening was that the um, I spoke to a cabinet member a couple of days ago was saying, look, we don't want to take this to a parliamentary vote against him. We want him to take the hint. And that hint was, first of all, gentle, then it was a little bit stronger in the form of a leadership, sorry, in the form of the, um, the, the confidence motion. And so you, what you ended up was stronger and stronger versions of the hint, right up until the point where there was like 50 fewer ministers in the government. Even then, Boris was saying, oh, this is actually a good thing. I can slim down government so I can have a more efficient government. Well, you could have a very efficient education department with no ministers in it at all. A very, um, I mean, that was actually a yes minister sketch, that abolished education department. He'd actually done that by accident. You had Michael Gove's department where he fired Gove and Gove's two other ministers had quit. And what was happening, I think, was that he was heading into Donald Trump territory. And he intends to be a public figure for many years after this. He intends to do television, to do books, to do um, highly paid newspaper columns. Speeches. Well, all sorts of things. And that sort of slightly depends on your reputation. And he was very quickly soiling his reputation in a way that would have seriously undermined his future earning potential and indeed his reputation. Because Trump will forever be defined, I think, by the leaving of the White House. And Boris Johnson was in grave danger of being defined by his refusal to work within democratic norms and way outside what most people would regard as democratic decency. And Isabel, let's talk about that potential damage to Boris Johnson's reputation. Because ultimately, I think the sense last night when it was clear that he was not moving and some quite interesting briefings uh, to various places, such as the Sun saying, you know, they have to be... Uh, you dip know, their hands in dip blood. Dip their hands in blood, <laughs> MPs, they're going to force him out of there. Effectively, now you have a situation where, prior to him choosing to go, it looked as though the most likely way out for the Prime Minister was next week, a, a new 1922 executive, they could bring in new rules, there could be a confidence vote Monday night, Tuesday. Is he going to get any credit or anything for choosing to go at this point? Because we're already hearing the Prime Minister would like to stay on through the summer until the autumn when a new leader is announced. But has he done so much damage that MPs don't want that to happen? I think Conservative MPs are quite psychologically damaged by the past few days. And I include in that people who even up to the weekend were still pro-Boris, who have just been upset. Uh, no, upset's not even a strong enough word. I mean, I've seen so many of them in tears, deeply disturbed by the way he behaved, the way he didn't take their advice, the way they feel he's embarrassed himself, uh, gone slightly mad, quite a few of them said. And I was talking to, to one of his staunch allies, who's worked incredibly hard to try to turn things around, to try to keep the party on track, to try to keep the Prime Minister on track. And he was saying, just look at how my colleagues still talk about the departure of Margaret Thatcher with tears in their eyes. The damage this is going to do to our party for a very long time cannot be underestimated. And they they were very much of the view that that Boris Johnson needed to go by that point. But they they were very concerned about the damage that this was going to do to to their colleagues, to the party's reputation, um, and to the sort of the general interactions within the party as well. There's a lot of toxicity now in the party. so I'm not sure he's going to get very much credit um, for going now rather than waiting to choose. Obviously, he would, you know, it would have been horrific had he uh, stayed on even until the afternoon. But um, 
but but I think the damage is, is really done. And I think there's going to be a lot of, in the post-mortem to this, there's going to be a lot of um, people saying that he's done irreparable damage to the party. And Fraser, there's some talk about an interim leader, but Boris Johnson doesn't want that. He wants to stay in 10 Downing Street. What do you think is the most likely outcome? Well, of course, Dominic Raab could take over as, as deputy leader, um, and Boris Johnson. Could, I don't think. First of all, I don't think that we need to wait until October to have a new leader. There is a faster timetable which goes as like this: that people start declaring their hand between now and I don't know Sunday, and then yeah, yeah, the spectator summer party. Well, we're having a summer party this evening. I imagine that's going to be the first hustings, the unofficial one, <laughs> and and then of course the MPs decide. Now, what you can do there is, if you want, have it's like it's a knockout competition. So you'd have they'd all collect votes, the least successful ones knocked out, etc. Now you could do two or three of these a day if you wanted. You could whittle it down to two candidates by the end of next week. Now, once you've got those two candidates, you could then take it to the party more nationally. And you needn't, by the way, allow that to drag on all summer. You could tell them we want you to do it in a month or, or even two or three weeks. So there's no reason why we couldn't have a new Prime Minister within a month. As the Tories are demonstrating with the 1922 committee, they can rewrite the rules at any time they want, really. And right now, we're the wee, this isn't a party in opposition that's got the luxury of a long time to lick its wounds and think what it wants to do with itself. This is supposedly a government at a time of economic crisis, at a time of war. And I think the Tories collectively owe it to the country to compensate for the chaos which they have collectively unleashed by coming up with some kind of order now. And that would mean getting their their ducks in a row, being able to not waste time on this. Would we... Now, we say in the cover story this week, and we've done the cover story on on the leadership, um, because we figured at the weekend, by the time we came out on Saturday, Boris would probably have gone and that we'd be looking at the leadership candidates. But we point out how little is known, for example, of Ben Wallace. Ben Wallace is the Defence Secretary. Now, he is one of the main candidates, said the bookmakers have got him as a sort of second or third favourite. What does he think about anything other than defence? Nobody really knows. You've got Penny Mordaunt, who right now, as we speak, is the bookmaker's favourite. And you might think, that's crazy, she's such a minor figure. Wouldn't it be Nadim Zahawi or Rishi Sunak, one of the bigger beasts? But Tory leadership contests are never like that. They're always won by people who've got the fewest enemies, not the most admirers. It tends to be a kind of um, a combination, with sort of a Tarantino-esque sort of squid game, to mix my film metaphors a bit, where people get taken out violently. So they think, OK, who's the frontrunner? OK, let's stop him. So we might see Nadim Zahawi emerge as a frontrunner, and then anybody but Zahawi camp try to take him out. Remember, Thatcher wasn't anybody when she became Tory party leader. Nobody took her seriously. Um, John Major wasn't really taken seriously as a leader. People assumed it would be a Heseltine figure. So the trajectory, the trend of Tory party leadership contests is to throw up somebody unexpected. And that's the stage we're now at. Isabel, when it comes to that unpredictable and potentially quite vicious leadership contest that we are heading towards, it's been interesting watching the various camps in terms of the cabinet ministers. So clearly you've had those who quit early on, Rishi Sunak, Sajid Javid. Then you've had those who have quit belatedly, 
I'm not even sure if Nadim Zahori has quit. I don't think he has. He's just <laughs> voiced concerns. And then you've got those such as Ben Wallace, who have stayed in cabinet, who I think put out a message today, along with also Therese Coffey, who we don't think is a leadership contender, but you never know, effectively saying, don't criticise us for remaining in cabinet. There are some really important jobs, the briefs. Are we starting to see them almost kind of get their, their lines out there as to justify either their distance or their closeness to Boris Johnson? Yeah, I think that's a really good point, that, that a lot of the campaigning over the next few days is going to involve people, as you say, explaining why I did what I did, um, why I stayed to ensure that you know the war in Ukraine continued to be supported by by the British government, why I decided to quit because I needed my integrity to be intact, even though I'd you know gone on the airwaves defending this Prime Minister for the past six months. Um, so I think that's going to be quite, um, I think, quite entertaining, actually. Um, I think it's going to have quite a lot of uh, interesting pleading. And then you're obviously going to have the the backbenchers like Steve Baker, who has made very clear that he wants to stand and is going to be the sort of ERG candidate. You've got uh, one of the most surprising um, <laughs> announcements was the Attorney General, Savannah Braverman, who Attorney Generals tend to sort of operate as kind of quasi-politicians when they're in that job and sort of rise above all of this. But uh, instead, she uh, went on Peston last night, declared her candidacy and then did a rogue media round which you kind of have to respect. In the I think she's the first one to properly declare, though. Yeah. And I think there is a kind of first mover advantage here. We've had these Tories moaning for I don't know how long about how much we don't like Boris Johnson. But what I haven't heard from any of them, even in private, is what or who would do better. There seem to be no new ideas right now. Mm. Now, this is why I think this could actually get worse for the Tories, because Boris Johnson has occupied this conversation. He's sucked the oxygen out of it, so much so, that nobody seems able to discuss anything other than him. But what is, like, what is going to be done about inflation? Is it, how is the Tory party going to cut spending if it wants low taxes? If so, where? Nobody is rushing to come out with any answers to this. So it could well be that Boris Johnson is a symptom rather than the cause of Tory malaise and that when he goes, they'll be stuck with the fact that they've got a whole bunch of problems and not a single, single serious solution. If that happens, then we are looking not so much at regicide, but suicide. We've had so much policy making that's been about survival and the survival of the Prime Minister that, as Fraser says, that, that there hasn't actually been much talk of sort of first principles and mm. why the party is doing what it's doing. And, and I think actually this, this relationship the Conservative Party has had with Boris Johnson, I think a lot of people are going to come out of it saying, I can't believe I propped him up for this long. A bit like, you know, when a couple splits up and suddenly they realise that they really hated each other and it takes quite a long time to unwind. Thank you, Isabel. Thank you, Fraser. And thank you for listening. A Spectator subscription is now better value than ever before. As a new subscriber joining today, you'll pay just £1 a week for unlimited online and app access in your first year. If you want the magazine delivered to your door on top of that, it's only £1 a week extra. And your first month is free without obligation. To subscribe today, go to spectator.co.uk forward slash unlimited.